You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 7th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster on today's show. I may declare a national emergency dependent on what's going to happen over the next few days. But I think we're going to have some very serious talks come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. The US government shutdown enters its third week. Theresa May is still battling to get her Brexit deal through Parliament, while France prepares for more protests by the Yellow Jacket movement. Why are Western governments in crisis and is there any way out of the turmoil? My guests, Mary Shackle and Quentin Peel, will be discussing these and the day's other top stories, including a week after elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a winner has yet to be declared. The government calls for patience, but is it trying to rig the results? And and outcry in India after speakers at a prestigious science conference claimed that ancient Hindus had guided missiles and invented stem cell research. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Samira Shackle and Quentin Peel. Samira is a freelance journalist writing for The New Statesman, The Guardian, the German national broadcaster Deutsche Welle and others. And Quentin is Associate Fellow of the Europe Programme at Chatham House. That is the not-for-profit foreign policy think tank. Welcome both of you to the programme. Now, the big question, what is happening to Western governments? Prime Minister Theresa May is urging MPs to back her plan to get Britain out of the European Union or risk leaving without a deal. Donald Trump says the partial shutdown of the US government will go on if he doesn't get the $5 billion he wants to build a wall to keep Mexican immigrants out of America. While the French President Emmanuel Macron has brought in tough new policies likely to ratchet up tension with demonstrators who've taken to the streets of Paris and other major cities in a series of violent protests. Three different crises. But what do they have in common? Samira, are we right to draw comparisons between them? I think, um, obviously, as with um, any kind of disparate political events in, in different countries, there's, there's huge differences. But I think it's um, there's certainly aspects that can be compared. Uh, and I think the kind of... Um, uh, a, a sort of general popular discontent, certainly there's been a lot of comparisons between the protesters in France and the kind of overriding, uh, whatever the initial causes of the protest, the overriding uniting feeling of um, of, of being abandoned by political elites, which many people have compared uh, to the Brexit vote and the kind of tenor of the debate that came up to it, a sort of sense of saying, um, you know, notice us to a system where, that people have felt disenfranchised and ignored by. And I think you could certainly uh, trace the same sort of feeling and trend as many analysts have uh, to the election of Donald Trump, which has kind of indirectly led to that um, that collapse there. I think another point of comparison is perhaps around uh, political polarisation, which you see in the US um, with the government shutdown in a very kind of direct way. And, and let's not forget, you know, this is... A, the, it's now superseded in length, I think, the, the 2013 shutdown um, that, were, that the Republicans uh, pushed while Obama was uh, in the presidency. Uh, but the kind of political polarisation I think you're also seeing around the West and um, very much tied perhaps to this sense of disenfranchisement and the feeling that the political system there caters more to the elites than to everyday people. Mm. And I'd like to stay with the idea of polarisation because, yes, Quentin, that, that 
that is pretty evident when you, you look at these three different scenarios, but perhaps more pronounced in the United Kingdom, that it's not just a divide between those who support the Conservative Party, the governing party, those who support Labour and those who support the other opposition groups. It seems to go beyond that. The fractures run much deeper. Yeah, I think the traditional divide between political parties of the left and the right has been overtaken by a deeper um, divide, which is really between cosmopolitan society and if you like, more traditional society, but slightly between the big cities and the rural areas. And you're seeing that in America and you're seeing that in France. Um, all of them, I think, that they, there is a backlash from uh, the old industrial areas and the rural areas saying, you know, we've been left behind, we're fed up. Um, and they're fed up not just with not getting a decent share of the economic cake, but also I think they're fed up with sort of the modern attitudes of cosmopolitan society, outward-looking, um, in favour of gay marriage and gender equality and minority rights, and none of that seems to fit with the older parts of the country. And so you've got a backlash there. Now, that's a huge generalisation, but nonetheless... Each of those countries that we're talking about have seen this deep and angry division, which doesn't seem to be going away. Mm, and certainly, Samira, if you take those factors into account, this is an indictment of a political system in all countries, which have stood pretty much unchallenged for some time, and perhaps they were taken aback at the extent of the backlash. I think so. I mean, let's not forget it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the end of history and uh, Francis Fukuyama's now very much outdated uh, words. Um, I think certainly um, I, I would add that I don't think you can um, divorce that kind of sense of a clash of value systems from uh, the economic system in which we live. And I think it's a kind of uh, a sense of frustration with this uh, mm. kind of late stage of capitalism that we're in, which has promised so much and kind of delivered so little for so many so people. So globalisation and the fourth industrial I, revolution. I think so. I think so. And I think also the kind of long reaching effect of the 2008 crash, which many people had never really recovered mm. from. You know, you have this major, major, major um, political and economic event, which is an absolute cataclysm for people. And then nothing really changes and the kind of continues. You have many people who never really worked again or not in the in the sense that they were working before um, and a, a feeling that business continues as usual for the people at the centre of it and yet, you know, a decade later you have these devastating consequences still playing out so I don't think it's any surprise that we're experiencing a political backlash even if that political backlash is then not articulated against something as, as kind of amorphous as the economic system in which we live it's articulated against, you know, as, as it so often is throughout history against immigrants or against um, people who are gay or whatever so it is. So it's pretty much scattergun in that sense, sense yeah. really, it's not just one thing which is at fault here, but but the other when you when you look at the three, there is this theme of control. Donald Trump, for example, Quentin said, you know, I'm going to take control of of this shutdown in government at the very beginning. Of course, he now seems to be trying to wash it, wash his hands of it, but perhaps reclaim it as and when it suits. Theresa May under pressure, and there seems to be this move now towards one of Parliament taking control. Emmanuel Macron would say, look, I am taking control because I'm not going to get blown off my economic program. I have to. Stand firm on this. I need to win. Yes, I mean, so take the 
the the slogan of the Brexit campaign in Britain, which was bring back control. Mm. And in fact, we've seen completely the opposite. Um, we've seen it. It's perfectly clear that they're not in control of the debate. The government certainly isn't in control in trying to deliver Brexit. Parliament is trying to take back control, but actually... It's riven by the same splits, really, that the electorate. The parliament is in many ways reflecting the electorate in its indecisiveness that it can't come up with a solution. So we're presented suddenly with no solution. And you've got the same thing a bit in Washington where you've got this divide still represented by the traditional parties. But I think because the parties themselves are divided within themselves. So... I think you're starting to see, if you like, reasonable Republicans getting really quite nervous about Donald Trump. Mm. But equally, the Democrats possibly being forced to get more radical and more left wing and Mm. leaving the center ground. So what you've got here is actually the shrinking of the center ground and this fragmentation which is pushing to the wings. And I think there's another element that's really stoking this, and that's the element of... Uh, the internet, social media of everybody, if you like, getting into their silos and then digging into them and refusing to listen to the other. We're right because we only listen. It's that echo chamber, isn't it? The the isolated echo chamber of of the internet. But the the other thing which which fascinates me is... um, the tools to take control because Theresa May is trying to negotiate with Parliament, make concessions. I think she's having drinks parties on Monday evening and um, Wednesday, to which we haven't been invited. It needs to be stressed. Emmanuel Macron doesn't appear to be holding drinks parties, but certainly Donald Trump, he's threatening to take control by declaring a state of emergency. Now, that takes it into into new realms that you know his, his powers pitched against those of, of Congress. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely got a kind of um, authoritarian streak, doesn't he? I mean, when uh, his election has often been kind of framed as part of a global rise of strongmen with uh, Modi in India and Erdogan in Turkey, etc., etc. And obviously you can... Mm. And Putin in Russia. Yeah, Putin in Russia. Of course, you can kind of... um, um, That's an imperfect comparison between all of those people, as as always. But I think that there certainly is... um, in Trump and his administration. Uh, Firstly, I think a kind of uh, lack of understanding of the way these um, democratic institutions and and systems function, actually, which is maybe a symptom of having such an inexperienced, um, politically inexperienced candidate at the centre of it. Um, I was reading earlier today that... um, the Trump administration just had no idea what a government shutdown actually meant when they decided to push it through. They didn't realise that it meant that people wouldn't get their food stamps, for instance. Uh, and so, you know, that's that, that's one aspect of it. And the other, I think, is this kind of um, populist authoritarian bent, which is a kind of, well, well, why can't I just get it done? And, and sort of... Um, I think Trump certainly sees himself as a candidate who promised to kind of push things through and be a strong man and doesn't really have that much respect for mm. the idea of democracy. And that's really worrying, I think. And he's, he's asking for yeah. $5 billion, but of course the cost could exceed that. There are rumours that it could cost him $20 billion to build this wall. But Quentin, you were going to respond to Samira's well, point. I was going to pick up on something. On my way here, I was reading an opinion poll actually about Germany, which said that uh, it showed that their decline in trust of traditional social institutions was... Yeah 
stronger than at any time in recent years. Decline in trust in the army, in parliament and the political parties, in the courts, in the education system. So all the traditional pillars of our society are seeing people started questioning them more and more. And then... Having said that, we've elected, well, certainly in Donald Trump, there was a person who was elected as a classic populist, or in Italy we've seen it, or, or uh, um, let's say in, in Hungary and Poland you've got very populist governments, and they aren't going to produce the answers, and they aren't producing the answers, and I think there's a real danger that we're going to see, you know, these populist leaders thrown up by this battle going on and then they will fail to deliver and mm. they, they there's going to be a backlash against it which could be very difficult to control. Yeah and, and uh, when you look at the much wider picture here I mean look we've, we've been focusing on three leading western democracies and to a certain extent in one way or, or form they have been paralyzed in some way by this flip side of, of populism. You do have to ask yourself what message does it send out to the rest of the world, particularly authoritarian states where you may have people who are pushing for democracy? They could, with some legitimacy, turn around and say, well, this is what happens when you give away too much democracy. You have deadlock systems and you have discontent, whereas at least if we can control things, mm -hmm. perhaps um, you, you can keep these forces at bay. I feel like that argument's already made in quite a lot of, of places. I mean, I do a lot of work in in uh, Pakistan and very commonly heard um, viewpoint is that, you know, well, it wouldn't be good. You know, it's probably better that lots of people don't vote because lots of people aren't really very educated. So, you know, you don't want them to have too much. You saw the same thing in Egypt after the revolution uh, sort of sense like, oh, do we really want um, all these conservative masses to be voting for amongst people who you, the kind of constituency you would traditionally think of as being pro-democracy? So I think that, I think that, that argument certainly is made. And I wonder if... Um, I think the the kind of counterpoint to that is that perhaps um, pro-democracy campaigners in different bits of the world are no longer uh, looking so strongly to the West. I mean, there's no reason that pro-democracy campaigns have to be um, kind of Western looking in, in a way that, you know, they can have their own kind of models and don't necessarily hold um, that kind of don't necessarily have to hold a kind of Western-centric view of it. But, yeah, I think there's definitely an argument to be made when you look at the US system that the, the kind of ideal of democracy in all aspects of life and having so many different um, elections and elected offices actually ends up being quite detrimental to the overall purpose of democracy when you see the kind of deadlock or, for instance, the recent debacle over the Supreme Court and so on. Mm. Quentin. If you if you take the track record of authoritarian regimes, and you mentioned Pakistan, I mean, the track record of military regimes in Pakistan, and indeed all regimes in Pakistan, is pretty disastrous. Yeah. So I don't think that one can turn around and say they've got the answer. Um, but we've seen now, take Brazil now. In, the, in, in But I wasn't saying that, just to clarify. Yeah. I, was, I was saying that people already, the, the argument, um, I, I think people already make that argument that, yeah. you know, oh, well, you don't want too much democracy. So I don't think a kind of disarray in the West would change the fact that that argument's already there. I think the argument's wrong-headed, yeah. but it exists, I is, think all I, is all I was saying. I think the danger may be yeah. that we've had too simplistic a view of democracy. You mentioned Francis Fukuyama saying, yeah. you know, the triumph of liberal democracy. Well, hang on. 
actually democracy is a very difficult thing to make work and it's all about checks and balances and those checks and balances don't exist for example in a referendum like we've mm. had in Britain so what you've got in Britain is a problem where you've got a referendum decision doing one thing and a parliamentary democracy which doesn't actually reflect the same thing so the two are at loggerheads or in the US you've got a man elected as president who represents um, somebody with total disdain for the traditional institutions, uh, whether it be the, the Federal Reserve or indeed the way he increasingly appears to operate towards the Supreme Court. Mm. But then what about the French experience? Because you have this, this, this leader, a young leader, often compared to, to Napoleon, but somebody who came in with apparently a, 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 what appeared to be a, a fresh approach to politics in terms of surrounding himself with people who are not necessarily drawn from the political old guard. They all brought different skills to the table and now they've been rejected. I think, I mean, the French thing is very much the jury's out, I think. These demonstrations on the streets of France are actually quite a small number of people and they've been getting smaller. They haven't been growing. The interesting thing is that they do appear to have been quite popular, that people say we have sympathy for these people. But we're only talking about like 3,000 people on the streets mm. of Paris bringing mayhem to central Paris. But, they ha- but certainly last weekend we saw that there were similar dem- demonstrations in, in Toulouse and, and other major cities in France as well. If Even if the number wasn't substantive, it's still the fact that they were happening and they're threatening more. Yes, and uh, indeed there is... I think, a a surprising degree of popular support for people who've been actually, have indeed been very violent in their tactics and bringing in the old anarchists and so on. Now, the French have a long tradition of taking to the streets. I actually think that if Macron, who hasn't played his cards very well, um, but if he can bring together um, a degree of the centre ground, then he could still come out of this on top. I mean, he's not threatened. He's got a clear parliamentary majority. He's got a clear mandate. He's not going to lose power in the next couple of years. Mm. Whereas Theresa May back in Britain is absolutely as the weakest prime minister we've had in living memory. And, and yet somehow she has still managed to hold on. This leads quite quite nicely to my, my next question really to both of you. We have three different situations. Quentin, you're quite optimistic about Emmanuel Macron, that he he will hold out. He's got more time to play with, but perhaps he needs to sharpen his hand. So how do you see the Brexit drama playing out? And also, in terms of the United States, who is likely to cave in first? (laughs) Well, (laughs) let's take Brexit first. Um, I mean, Almost anything could play out now. What we think is going to happen is that, you know, within a very short space of time, Theresa May's entire game plan is going to fall flat on its face because it's going to be rejected by Parliament. But there's no other solution that's going to be accepted by Parliament. I still believe that maybe the only way out of this is to have another referendum. I hate the idea of it because I think direct democracy by referendums is a very bad way of taking decisions. But that may be the only way out, and I don't think Theresa May will survive indefinitely. As for the US one, I might almost throw that over to Samira. <laughs> so who's going to win? Who will blink I, I first? want you to take yeah. take ownership of this question. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, it's, 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 it, well, for the, the fact that you're passing it over to Samira. Perhaps it's a little bit too difficult to call, but which way do you think the American adventure is likely oh to go? Oh God, I mean, I don't know. I think that <laughs> it's quite difficult to see really because um, of course um, I think that there's 
probably a bit more of a sense of responsibility amongst the Democrats, as you see, in the fact that they do keep kind of filing bills to reopen aspects of um, a federal responsibility. Um, whether they'll kind of buckle on that first, uh, but they have no real incentive to do so because historically um, the evidence is that voters don't blame the opposition for a shutdown, even if it's patently their fault, they blame uh, the sitting president. So there's no real incentive apart from the, the enormous human mm. costs. So, and then well, Having said that, um, yeah. Mr Trump himself has said, well, it's mainly Democratic supporters that are going yeah. to get hurt by this government shutdown. So perhaps yeah. you, you don't want to antagonise your supporters. Yeah, and you also don't want to cause kind of needless misery, I guess, <laughs> you know. But, he's, uh, yeah, the trouble but with, he doesn't care. Really. Yeah. <laughs> the trouble with Trump is he seems to play, you know, hardball poker all the time. He absolutely mm. takes a rigid decision and then doesn't matter. And then suddenly, about three weeks later, he'll actually do the complete opposite. We're seeing mm. it in his withdrawal from Syria now. You mm. know, I'm going to pull out of Syria. And suddenly... Well, maybe not quite straight away. It's sort of he does change and he gets away with it because mm. he just throws out another couple of tweets saying the opposite to what he's been saying. <laughs> it's called keeping everyone on their toes. You're not quite off the hook yet, Vera, because um, there is the question of, of Brexit. Now, mm. Quentin feels that perhaps, like it or not, we may end up having another referendum, even if that is not the intended result. Do you think it could go that way? Uh, that the I withdrawal think, vote will, will, I, will basically fail? I think it's really unlikely we're going to have a second referendum, actually. I think that uh, the thing that's getting ignored so much is just the fact that the default position, as it currently stands legally, is is a no-deal Brexit. So, you know, they, we had MPs, 200 MPs, signing a letter today saying um, that, you know, asking Theresa May to guarantee that we don't have no deal. I mean, she doesn't have the power to do that. That is the default legal position. At the moment, we don't have a majority for anything, don't have a majority for a referendum or anything. So, you know, that's, that, that's kind of where we default to. Mm. Nothing like mm. living in uncertain times. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Samira Shackle and Quentin Peel. Coming up next, why have the authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo delayed calling the results of December's election? How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials from great transport to perfect places to work as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful large format books is available now. Buy yours at monocle.com shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. Still with me are Samira Shackle and Quentin Peel. Now, election results in the Democratic Republic of the Congo have been postponed eight days after the vote. Officials from the country's Electoral Commission claim the delay is because votes are still being counted, although that explanation has been dismissed by the opposition. It claims that Joseph Kabila, who's already served two constitutionally mandated terms as president, is trying to rig the vote in favour of Emmanuel Ramazani Shadari, who is seen as his puppet. It's also possible that Mr Kabila could decide to stand for election in 2023. Some extraordinary claims from the opposition, but do you feel that perhaps those fears of rigging are plausible given some of the problems that occurred in the run-up to the elections and in fact whilst they were going on? 
Oh, yes. I think these were chaotic elections. You've had uh, a very important uh, opposition areas that actually had no voting at all. You've had a thousand polling stations closed in Kinshasa, um, which one suspects would have gone against the president's favoured candidate. So uh, I think one must be very suspicious about what's going on. Um, having said that, I think that if the opposition wins this election, that could be a remarkable thing for one of the most tortured and difficult countries in the whole of Africa, Congo, which has had a terrible sort of corrupt and authoritarian governments for decades. And uh, if actually a change of power were to happen uh, through a, an election, that would be a tremendous success. If it doesn't happen, I fear this is a country that could tip back into civil war. Mm. And, and what's your, your take on this? Do you feel that perhaps that they, we could actually get a result which opens the door to a new leader or or do you feel that it could it could well end up being that rigged poll do you have some optimism at all i mean i think the the kind of signs so far don't seem particularly positive you have the this kind of um, not just long delay in the results coming out, but also kind of shutdown of communications, partial internet shutdowns, mm. um, mobile phone um, signal. It seems like, and, and the kind of radio broadcast of, um, of French radio. So it does seem like a real attempt to kind of control and restrict information on top of uh, already worrying reports, not just from opposition activists, but also from Human Rights Watch about um, irregularities um, and what appears to be quite blatant rigging. You know, things like... Um, like closing polling stations very abruptly so lots of people weren't able to make it to vote and so mm. on. And so I think uh, in that kind of context and the context that you had this kind of... Um uh, the the candidate, as you said, who is supposed to be kind of keeping the seat warm for when Kabir can return. Yeah, um, if he has the ambition to, to, exactly, to go for election in yeah, 2023. If, if, you know, with that, that whole kind of context, it doesn't bode well. Um, on the other hand, you have had a kind of... Um, upsurge in in democratic organizing that i think has made this um vote possible um and and you know the if if polling before the election is to be believed you know that that meant the opposition candidate was really in the lead so i mean the the kind of signs are there for a, a move towards democracy and if it does happen it would be really positive as the country's first peaceful uh, mm. democratic transition since um since independence but i don't think it looks very good at the moment right and quentin let me throw this back to you before we move on to our next subject these these elections are complicated by the other potential players in the drama. I'm talking about the Catholic Church, also Rwanda and South Africa. Yes, and the mining companies. Let us not forget that this is a country that's fantastically rich and mining companies have been very close to President Kabila. So uh, there are all these players involved and uh, on the borders, yes, Rwanda and Burundi, two countries torn apart by their own civil wars. So that effect has been constantly coming into the country. I've only ever visited uh, DRC once in my life when it was still Zaire and Mobutu mm. was there. I don't think I've ever visited a country where I felt less secure because it, it, it was as if there was no system holding the place together. 
Mm, Okay, then let's move on now to our final topic. And the organisers of a major scientific conference in India, attended by Nobel laureates and leading researchers, are distancing themselves from astonishing remarks made by some of the delegates. One claimed that ancient religious texts prove that Hindus invented stem cell research, whilst another said a demon king in the Hindu epic the Mahabharata had two dozen aircraft and a network of landing strips in modern-day Sri Lanka. And they're not the only gems that uh, the delegates came up with, are they? Yeah, it's not uh, it's not great for a kind of very prestigious um, prestigious scientific uh, conference, but I think it does. Um, I think it tells you something about the kind of state of discourse in um, in Indian politics at the moment, um, where you've really had a huge resurgence in the in the kind not just the popularity of the Hindu religious right, uh, Hindu nationalist movement uh, with the election of Narendra Modi in two thousand and fourteen, but also. Um, in in their kind of shift to more and more extreme positions, and you know, it's easy to laugh about these kinds of um, quite patently ridiculous, uh, quite patently ridiculous statements. But they are, uh, you know, it's, it's quite worrying and quite extreme, and, and driving a lot of communal tension. I think when you look at other areas, hmm. Quentin. So here's a, here's a country that is emerging as one of the most dynamic countries of the future, and yet is torn between, if you like, the modern side and this real nostalgia for an ancient world, which was certainly not inventing stem cells and or discovering stem cells and so on. And it's really, there's a battle for the soul of India, I think, going on. And because we've got elections looming, Narendra Modi is, is you know, fighting to, to hang on to power. It's, I think, it's going to be a turbulent time for the next few months. Mm, and a decoy tactic, effectively whipping things up to, to perhaps shift attention away from areas where you're perceived to have failed. Using this nationalism and using religion and exactly the sort of things that we're disturbingly seeing also re-emerging in Europe, in America. Mm, sounds very, very familiar from somebody's playbook. We have to leave it there. But that brings us to the end of today's show. My guests, Samira Shackle and Quentin Peel. thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. And today's show was produced by Bill Luti. It was researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Miley Evans. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next. Then at 1900 hours, it's the Monocle Culture Show with Robert Rapbound. We'll also have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 20. 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Juliette Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>